So tonight finds us at the third book of the Bible. We're going through the Bible roughly a book a week. Uh, we'll condense a couple books. Um, but we're doing a Bible overview looking at uh, how the scriptures tie together, how they're all relevant to us. Um, so tonight finds us in book number three, which is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is written by Moses. Um, it's written um, actually in order as the books were written, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the third book Moses wrote, uh, hence it's third in order, right? It, um, so Genesis takes place historically over about 2,500 years. Exodus takes place over uh, kind of 80 years to 100 and some years, depending on, you know, where you want to count it. Um, Leviticus takes place over about a month. And basically, as the children of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt, the Lord's delivered them from their sins, and now he's saying, okay, now we're going to establish a cultural identity. What does it mean to be the children that God has called out? And what does it mean to be the people of God? And so, um, so that's really, you know, that's the second half of Exodus. We talked about that a little bit last week. But that's going to really, uh, in large part, fall to the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is a really interesting book because um, it's sort of, it's gotten a, a bad rap in Christianity because it feels very uh, dry in some ways. Um, and, and it can be a legitimate challenge to read through. But Leviticus is interesting because it's a book that was written with the intention to become functionally obsolete. Because Leviticus is laying down the covenant between God and his people. It's not a contract, per se, where it's, you know, hey, I give you the money, you give me the keys to the house. It's a fair trade. It's God has made a promise. I will be faithful to you. Okay, and, and it's God laying down and establishing that. And with that, there's, he does set terms for if you want to receive the blessings from me, here's what you have to do. But his faithfulness is given as a guarantee to the Israelite people. But um, as he lays down the law, as Christians, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, I've come to fulfill the law. Okay, and in the book of Hebrews, it talks about when you have a new covenant, the old one, you don't use it anymore, right? If, if you put in an offer on a house and then the... Uh, seller comes back with a counter offer, then legally your first offer is now void once you accept the counter offer, right? The new contract makes the old one obsolete. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. So a lot of what we read in the book of Leviticus has no uh, literal application to us because we're going to read about sacrifices and we're going to read about ordinances uh, that are specifically for the priest in the Jewish religion. So th that begs the question then, so why do we read it? Right, so what's the, you know, if the Lord designed Leviticus in some ways to be sort of kind of a short-term book, what's its point? Well, here's the point uh, in, if you would, you don't have to necessarily, but if you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church and he's been talking a little bit about uh, the history of Israel in the wilderness. And in, in chapter 10 verse 6, he says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So Paul here says, okay, writing to the church, writing to New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, he says, the things that happened to Israel happened for us to learn from. They are examples for us, okay? So we look at the book of Leviticus and we don't look at it and say, okay, what do I need to know when I want to go sacrifice a sheep? Okay, because that's not 
That's not what we're called to under Christianity. But we do look at it to say, okay, what can I learn? What is the Lord trying to convey? And that's where Leviticus really comes alive as Christians. Because in the book of Leviticus, God is choosing to relate himself to the people. God is explaining to the people, here's who I am and here's what it should mean in your life. All right, here's how this should impact the ways you come to me. And it's interesting, as you look at Leviticus, one of the primary things that the Lord is going to emphasize is his holiness. The Lord, uh, you know, he's taking a whole book of the Bible to say, I want to explain myself. And I want to make sure you understand who I am and how you approach me. And the primary point of emphasis that he wants to get across is that he's holy. All right, and so the book of Leviticus is really a book on holiness, okay? And it's also, um, well, I'll say that for a little bit later, but, um, but it's a book on holiness as God is relating it to us, all right? So we look at the book of Leviticus to learn how can we relate to God, right? God said, hey, here's how you relate to me. And so we're looking at it not in the sense of what's the, uh, you know, the physical task that he's setting to the Israelites that I am supposed to carry out because the covenant's been fulfilled, but we're looking at it for, okay, here's how God expects us to relate to him, all right? So, so that's sort of the overarching picture of the book of Leviticus. And um, to sort of break it down a little better, Leviticus really divides into two chunks. Um, and you could probably break it down a couple different ways. But by and large, the book of Leviticus is going to break down into two chunks. The first chunk is chapters 1 through 16 or 17, give or take. Um, and then the second half is like chapter 18 through the rest of the book. The first half is all about how you have access to God. The second half is all about how you walk with God, okay? Because it's two important, it's two very important things, but they're very different in their own right because God is relating his holiness. So one of the most basic concepts in the scripture is that God is holy and we are not, right? Uh, scripture says if you keep the entire law and stumble in one point, you are as guilty as if you have broken every law that God has ever laid down, right? So if you are completely perfect, Right? I mean, if you have never sinned once in your life and somebody asks you to take out the trash and you say, oh, you just blew it. You, it, it you know, or one person walks by with a nice beanie or pair of pants and you think, I'd kind of like that. You just blew it, the entire thing. Right? Because that's, that's the level of holiness that God is. That's, that's how holy the Lord is, that that small of a thing, as we measure it, separates us from the presence of God, okay? It takes us away from the presence of God. So God's holiness is something that's very serious, but he's gonna give us the outline for here's how you have access to me, all right? So first thing, when you wanna have access to God, there has to be blood, Leviticus is um, the bloodiest book in the Bible. The word blood is mentioned more in Leviticus than anywhere else in the scriptures, all right? Because access to God happens through sacrifice. And in the Old Testament context, that's the sacrifice of animals, right? As New Testament believers, we believe that Jesus paid the final sacrifice, which is why we don't have to sacrifice animals. But in, to have access to God in an Old Testament context, there had to be animals sacrificed on a regular basis because an animal could cover your, the sacrifice of an animal could cover your sin in the eyes of God, but it couldn't transform you. It couldn't remove your identity as a sinner. It could cover it until the next time you sin, right? So it was a temporary solution. It wasn't designed to be a long-term solution, but the Lord is setting up the foreshadowing to point to Jesus Christ. So there has to be 
blood. There has to be sacrifice, all right? And we see the, the book opens up with a bunch of different offerings, okay? It is, here's the offering you give for when you've sinned against me. Here's the offering you give for when you've sinned and you didn't know you were sinning. Here's the offering you give for when you want to experience peace with me. Here's the offering you give if you're just thankful and you want to just, you know, give a gift to me because you appreciate my holiness, all right, so there's all these different descriptors of how these different offerings are carried out. But as we look at them, what we're understanding is uh, when we approach the Lord, we approach ready to bring something. You never approached the Lord empty-handed in the book of Leviticus, right? You never came to the Lord and said, hey, God, I didn't bring anything. Sorry, right? And, and it wasn't because God needs it, because he's holy, he's perfect, but it's because you need it, right? Because if you're going to ask for access to God, there's got to be an understanding of here's what I'm bringing to the Lord because I'm aware of his holiness and my sinfulness, right? So they never came empty-handed. When we come to the Lord, we shouldn't come empty-handed. We should come with an awareness and an understanding. And it doesn't mean, you know, this, this isn't where you turn into you should come with money or whatever. No, you come ready to bring something to the Lord. So as a church, we start off every service with worship, Right? We are bringing something to the Lord. We are bringing an offering of praise. Right? That's why there's a big difference between singing a song and worshiping the Lord. Because when we're worshiping the Lord, we're actually giving up something. We are declaring a truth. We're, we are you know, speaking out the words of Scripture. All right? We're saying, this is true, and as I come into your presence, I want to be made aware of this. I want to recognize this in my own heart. I want to see and I be aware of your holiness and how it impacts my life. So there's always sacrifice to, to have access to God. The second thing that happens is the priest had to be cleansed. God gives a whole list of, of steps. Okay, Aaron, the, the nation of Israel is broken into like 12 tribes. One of the tribes was the tribe of Levi. One of Levi's descendants was a man named Aaron. God said the descendants of Aaron are going to be the priests. They're going to be the representatives who stand between the people and God. Okay, they're the ones at the temple. There's a certain point at which uh, there's a room where the presence of God is and only one priest can enter in and he can only go in once a year because that's all the holiness of God that you can take without getting killed. Right, that's it. But the priests have to be cleansed in order to be to have access to God. And how are they cleansed? Well, they, Moses gives this whole description. He gives them these, he, you know, they get these super fancy outfits and there's turbans and sashes and they've got like a breastplate that has a stone for each one of the tribes of Israel and it's all white and it's designed to be very, uh, it's designed so they won't sweat. It's like it's, there's all these plans and specs that the Lord's giving them. So the priests are all decked out. They've got to look pretty awesome, right? And then Moses sacrifices an animal and he starts splattering blood on them, right? Because access to God comes through blood. Now, it's interesting because in the New Testament, it talks about that we are given new clothes, in a sense, when we accept the Lord, right? It talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb is how the Bible describes it. Sort of, you know, when Jesus comes for the church, um, basically, like, we're all going to be in white. We're all going to be pure. We're going to be purified and glorified in ways that we can't even imagine, but... It's only going to happen because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So the priests get all, you know, decked up and decked out and all that, and then they pour blood on it, right? Because you can get the new garment, that's great, but the garment's only sanctified when the blood of the lamb covers it, right? So same deal with the priests. The priests 
have to be cleansed, right? So if we want to have access to God, what's the first thing? There has to be blood. Second thing, the priests have to be cleansed. And an important point is if, well, again, you don't have to flip over that if you don't want to, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then in chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Paul says, don't you understand something? You're part of the temple. Your body is a temple for the Lord to dwell in, which means you're a priest, right? Leviticus, in a nutshell, is the handbook for being a priest, all right? Leviticus is the book for how to be a priest. Now, we're priests of the new covenant, right? But if you look at it in that light, there's a lot more application all of a sudden because this isn't just, oh, here's what Moses did, here's what Aaron did, here's what, you know, happened to the lamb. It's, no, no, this is, this is an awareness of not just how God wants us or they to approach him. This is how God wants me to approach him, right? So if I'm going to have access to God, well, there has to be blood. I have to be cleansed. I can't approach God just because I want to. I have to be cleansed somehow. And then the third point in sort of the first half is we have to access God by his standards, right? And this, we see this in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Aaron has two sons uh, who decide to offer to God on their standards. And, and it's not super clear, so you don't want to over-elaborate and speculate, but, um, but they do something profane. It says they offered profane fire to the Lord. And the Lord kills them right there, right? And you can read that and say, wow, that sounds really harsh. But you've got to remember, the Lord is establishing his identity. He's establishing his holiness to a nation of people, right? And so if you're going to represent the Lord to a nation of people, the Lord takes that very seriously, right? So these guys try to misrepresent the Lord in some way that they think is going to make them look cool or do something interesting or we just don't need all these rules. And the Lord says, no, you're dead. You're gone. I, the Lord really, in his grace kills them before they have a chance to negatively impact the rest of the people. But if you're going to have access to God, it has to be on his terms, right? We don't access God because we feel like it. We don't access God by any other means. We access God the way he tells us, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, I'm the door. Anybody who comes in by any means other than the door is a thief, Right? So, it's, Scripture is very clear. If you're going to be, have access to God through blood, you're going to have access to God by being cleansed. You're going to be cleansed and you're going to accept that blood on God's terms. Well, what are God's terms? God's terms are you accept the free gift of Jesus Christ that he paid when he died on the cross for you. Right? That is the term. That's the condition. Right? There are not many roads to heaven. There is one because... The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, we have been separated so far that God has the right to set whatever terms he wants. God has the right to condemn us all. And he's perfectly justified in doing that. But instead, he decided, I'm going to create a way. He didn't decide to create multiple ways. He decided to create a way. And so he offers that way for us. So there's blood to have access to God, right? And just to, we're just recapping. We have to be cleansed to have access to God. And we have to access God by his standards, all right? So that's sort of the first half of Leviticus. But then the second half goes into how do you want to walk with God, 
And um, when it makes the shift, I want us to read it. Uh, chapter 18, if you would. We're just going to read the first five verses. It says in chapter 18, verse 1 of Leviticus, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So it's a pretty short paragraph, but three times in this paragraph, God says, I am the Lord, right? And we can, you know, if, if you're reading Leviticus, you can kind of start to glaze over and you, and you can lose sight of what that really means. But he's saying, I am the Lord. I am the I am. I am the great supreme personal being who is holy, who is talking to you, right? I'm not, this is not, wishful thinking. This is not Buddha talking to us. This is the Lord talking to us. So if we're going to walk with the Lord, we got to understand what's he say. He says, well, here's the deal. I just took you out of the land of Egypt. All right. And we talked about last week, Egypt throughout uh, the course of the scriptures is a picture of the world, the world system, the sin lifestyle that we've come out of when we've been saved by the Lord. Okay. So the Lord says, hey, I just took you out of Egypt. So you don't go around acting like Egyptians. Right? So if we've been taken out of the world, we've been taken away from the sins of the world, then the Lord would say, that is not your lifestyle anymore. And the Israelites are getting ready to go into the land of, of Canaan. The Lord's going to say, the place where you're going to be, that is not your lifestyle either. Right? You're going to walk the path that I set if you want to walk with me. So the Lord says, so, okay, so looking at our lives, if we've been pulled out of sin, if we've been pulled into salvation, we're supposed to leave that behind. If we're still living in a sinful world, which we are, right? We are not supposed to be conformed to the world around us. Romans 12 says we're supposed to be, I think it's Romans 12. I think so. It says you're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. So the Lord is saying here, I am the Lord. I am holy. If you're going to approach me, you are going to have to do it by not walking in the sins of the world, in those sins you've come out of, and not walking in the sins that are pulling you right now, right? If you want to walk with me, you're going to have to walk in holiness. And so then for the rest of the book, he proceeds to, to outline what that is. And so, um, so he kind of breaks it down, you know, chapter 18 really says, don't walk in sexual sin. And he just drops it right there. And, and really, you know, you sometimes just got to say it when the scriptures bring you to it. The Bible's really clear on what's permissible and what is not, and I'm not going to go too deep, but basically here's the options, all right? Uh, you can either exist in a covenant marriage between one biological man and one biological woman, right? And you're faithful, the two of you, just the two of you. Or you can be pure in your singleness. That's it. The Bible you know, he elaborates a little further, but that's really, in a nutshell, you can break it down. You have two options, right? That, that's it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It doesn't matter how you're attracted. It doesn't matter what your impulses are. If you're going to serve the Lord and walk in holiness, you have two options, right? Uh, sexual fulfillment, uh, in a physical sense, can happen between a husband and a wife. If, it, if that's not your situation, don't mess with it, 
right? That's, that's what the Lord says. And the Lord, and you can say, well, it's just the Old Testament. No, the Bible is pretty clear throughout. Jesus, uh, in case you, f- you want to work around it, Jesus breaks it down even tighter in the New Testament, okay? So that's chapter 18. He then goes on and says, so don't walk in sin. If you want to walk with the Lord, don't walk in sin, right? Which is a great step one. Step number two, he says, don't give the Lord your leftovers, he says, he goes on to elaborate, when you bring a sacrifice to the Lord, you are not supposed to bring the three-legged animal that's going to die tomorrow, right? You bring the good one, right? You bring your breeding stock. You bring the thing, the animal that you deep down wanted to save, right? Because it was so good, okay? He says, you do not bring your leftovers. And, and it's an interesting thing because Israel would wrestle with this for all of their history, um, in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, the Lord says, you guys are defiling my name. And you're going to ask me, how have we defiled your name? And I'll tell you how you defiled my name. When you bring the blind for your sacrifice, isn't it evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, isn't it evil? Why don't you go offer it to your governor? Right? The Lord says, you guys know how to do this in a human context. Right? If, 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 a, if a world leader comes to you, Let's say it's the kind, you know, we live in America, so we don't fully appreciate this. Um, you know, sometimes we have like, well, if I met our leader, I'd really tell him what I think. Um, but picture it in more like a North Korean context, which is how most of the world has operated for most of world history, all right? If you're, gonna, if you're a North Korean, and you're going to meet the North Korean dictator, and you're supposed to bring him something, right? He says, I'd like you to bring me a sheep. What kind of sheep do you think you might bring, right? We understand this on a human level. The Lord says, hey, I'm the Lord. Book of Malachi, it's one of my favorite lines. The Lord says, for I am a great king. I'm not just a governor. I'm not a president. I didn't win by, you know, the popular vote and the electoral vote or one or the other. No, 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 no. I'm a great king. I am the Lord, Okay, so if you want to walk with the Lord, don't walk in sin. If you want to walk with the Lord, don't give him your leftovers. Okay, and and we can, you know, and then lastly, and I want to make sure we get this last, and the Lord puts it in last, I think, too, is um, you rest in the Lord and you celebrate the Lord. Okay, and this is important because, you know, the first two, I just gave you two things to, I just said don't. Right? And, and, I, and if you're not careful, you can turn Christianity into a list of rules and say, well, I'm sure God will like me better if I don't do this and I do do this, right? And Christians aren't supposed to do this, and, and we should do this, and, and it's, you know, we like to give ourselves these little rules because it makes us feel extra special or extra holy or just smarter than the person right next to us, right? But whenever the Scripture gives us a do, all right, so the Scripture gives very specific don'ts, all right? Paul's going to talk about put off these things. Right? Do not walk in these things. And, and that's really throughout all the scriptures. But whenever it tells us what to do, it very often gives us these things that aren't quantifiable. And that's intentional, I think, because the Lord doesn't want us to ever get to this point of like, check. Right? Uh, it's never like, got that one done. Let's move on. No, no. How do you celebrate the Lord? Because that's a little broad. Right? Or when Paul talks about in Colossians, put on kindness. Well, exactly how much kindness do you think we're supposed to put on? Or humility. How, how much humility do we put on, right? Usually we put on just enough to get proud about how humble we are, and then uh, we sort of go back to square one, right? 
But, but when the Bible tells us to put on something, it's, it's different. And so in this case, the Lord gives Israel a series of feasts. He says, I want you to, I want you to have time where you, where you stop your life, you stop the busyness of your life, and you remember, all right? And again, this is one of those areas that, you know, we don't get a direct command in the New Testament as Christians, oh, you have to pause and take, and, and, you know, take a mandated rest from work. But we're told to rest in the Lord, okay? So he gives a couple different examples. He says the Sabbath is supposed to be holy. You should do no work on the Sabbath. And then he gives uh, six holidays. He says, these are holidays for you to come together and remember who I am. A couple of them are supposed to be a little more solemn and, and, and a time of you know, repenting and asking forgiveness for your sins. But a lot of them were really parties, they really were. They were times when the whole nation would come together. Um, and they would all, you know, there's one, it's the Feast of Trumpets. Like, let's just get together and blow a bunch of trumpets. There's the Feast of Booths where they all get together and live in tents for a week, right? What's, I mean, you know, picture like being a kid growing up in Judaism in, a, in an ideal situation. And once a year, you get to go live in a tent with every other person you know. And it's this safe environment and you're all just there worshiping the Lord together. How cool is that? How much fun is that, right? Like, there's an excitement that comes because you're celebrating what the Lord has done. And later on, even, in the book of uh, Nehemiah, there's a time when they're reading the law and explaining the law to the people because people have forgotten the law. And, the, and people are feeling convicted because they recognize they've been so sinful in, in their lives and, and they all start to weep. And Nehemiah just closes the book and says, guys, this is supposed to be a day of celebration. So he says, we're gonna take a break Everybody go buy Christmas presents for everybody you know. Everybody go get some food and we're gonna rejoice today because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah says, guys, you're supposed to celebrate the Lord, right? So, we, so in our walk with the Lord, we celebrate the Lord, right? We don't just, you know, well, we shouldn't anyway. Sometimes we do, but we don't show up to church with this idea of like, eh, I hope they have something interesting for me you know I hope they I hope they I remember this was years ago and it was not at this church and none of you know the person I'm going to reference so it's all safe and tidy but um I remember being at a church years and years and years ago and was talking about a family with dad and he said you know that JFK speech where he said don't ask what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country right he said, the same thing's kind of true of church. You shouldn't ask what your church can do for you. You should ask what you can do for your church. And he said, this family here kind of asks what the church can do for them, right? And he wasn't being judgmental or anything. He was just pointing out observation as a teaching point. But, uh, you know, sometimes we do that, right? Like, I'm coming to church. I've had a rough week. I hope it's going to lift me up and make me feel good. And that's completely missing the entire point of gathering together. Why do we gather together? Right? Why do we have church? Because God is holy. Right? And on top of that, because we are sinful, but on top of that, and so much greater, because He has provided the means for us to have access to Him, for us to have fellowship with Him. Right? The Lord has bridged that gap, and by golly, that is cause for celebration. Right? That's why we gather together. That's why we sing as a group, right? Because it's not because, like, we all have such exceptional voices, right? It's because we have exceptional joy. 
It's because we have the joy of the Lord. We recognize our salvation. We recognize the source of our salvation. So that's, that's how you walk with the Lord, right? So, so as we're looking at the book of Leviticus, that's what we've got, right? Here's how you have access to God, and then here's how you walk with God. But lastly, as, as we're going through the Old Testament in particular, we want to pause and say, okay, where is Jesus Christ, right? Because if, if the entire point of Christianity is to focus our eyes on Christ, then where is Jesus Christ in the book of Leviticus? Because if you just read it through really fast once and say, yep, I read it once, you can kind of feel like, no, there wasn't anything in there. But if you back up a little bit, okay, well, there's sacrifices, right? There's blood everywhere in this book. Every celebration, as, as exciting as it would be, they're still killing animals, right? Because there's excitement, the Lord's making a way, but we're still stuck in a temporary system here in the Old Testament, right? So what are we looking, so, but it's all pointing forward to the fact that there's gonna be a perfect sacrifice, right? Who was so holy and yet so equal to us, right? That Jesus Christ was in a way that we will never comprehend, 100% divine and 100% human, right? So he was just like us. He could fully be a substitute, right? But he was also so holy that he could be the substitute for every single person across all of time and space, right? So he was the sacrifice. He was the blood offering. He is the blood by which we're cleansed. He's the blood that stains our garments so that we can be washed, right? The blood of Jesus Christ, it says, washes us, you know, can wash us whiter than snow, all right? And so the sacrifice has been completed, so we're brought into the fellowship with God so that Jesus can introduce us to God the Father and say, hey, Dad, this is my bride. And God the Father says, hey, right, welcome to the family. And so Jesus is in the sacrifices. Jesus, interestingly, Leviticus gives all kinds of additional rules in the midst of all this on health and sanitation, all right? And there's a big chunk on leprosy. And leprosy in Leviticus is sort of a kind of a catch-all phrase for several different contagious, infectious skin diseases, all right? Um, but by and large, as best as we can medically understand it, what it's, what it's talking about is incurable diseases, all right? And so there's a system for whereby you get evaluated by the priest. The priest would, you know, determine whether or not you actually did or didn't have leprosy. If you did, you had to isolate permanently for the rest of your life, okay? But there was this interesting little provision in Leviticus for, hey, when a person gets healed from leprosy, here's what you do. Here's how they get purified so they can re-enter society, which is a bit intriguing because it's talking about incurable diseases, right? In the entire Old Testament, um, three people get healed of leprosy. Um, but in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and starts healing people from leprosy, and he always tells them, go show yourself to the priest, right? Like, hey, go let the priest, you know, Go through the checklist. So these priests would have spent their entire life, you know, they would have, um, most of them would have memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. So they would have known the whole passage on here's how you cleanse somebody with leprosy. They probably have never pulled it out in their life because leprosy is an incurable disease, right? It's sort of the appendix that they, not the, like, not the appendix, the appendix in the book that they never could figure out what to do with, Right? And all of a sudden, these people start coming up and saying, hey, I had leprosy, and some guy healed me and told me to uh, come talk to you about it, right? 
And so you got to go back and say, wait a second. Why are people getting healed with, from leprosy? Well, how, who's got the kind of power to, to really cure incurable diseases? So Jesus, even in the passages about leprosy, it's foreshadowing to the power of Christ. Um, you know, we talked about rest a little bit. Jesus lets us enter into true rest. And we've been talk, I've been talking about this with a, with a friend a little bit lately. Like, what is rest? And, and how does it work? And, and, you know, the Sabbath, as it's commanded by God in the Old Testament, that command doesn't carry over into the New Testament. We're not commanded by God as Christians to take a day out of every seven days and do no work. Now, it's a darn good practice, right? It's, it's I mean, we're physical beings. We, we need rest. We are all going to go home and go to sleep tonight. Why? Because our bodies need rest. It's just a reality. And the Lord, we're built, we're, we're human beings who are built for a weak system. And so we're built for bodies that really just need a day of rest. But it's not a command from God. Okay, what Jesus offers is he fulfills that rest so we can rest in Christ. And, and it's interesting because in a lot of senses, the Old Testament Sabbath was a rest from something. To rest from your labor. Labor, uh, in some senses, is a curse as part of the sin. Adam had to tend the garden before the sin entered the world. But really, like the earning a living by the sweat of your brow is a curse of sin. And so the Lord calls his people to take a rest from their work to remind themselves, in a lot of ways, that there's a rest coming. But also to give themselves some actual physical rest. Well, we don't have to rest from something. We rest in someone, right? But we still are seeing this picture, the rest that God is telling them to take. He's telling them, you know, you need to take a break. You need to settle down. You need to, to kind of set your mind back on me. We can do that in, in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment context because Jesus is inviting us into the rest that he's offering. And so, yes, physical rest is great. I sincerely recommend it. But Jesus is giving us so much more than that, right? We're not resting from our work. We're resting in the Lord. And then lastly, um, one, you know, when the, when the people would bring their sacrifices, and we talked about, you know, it's supposed to be a good lamb and, and an unblemished lamb. Um, I heard a pastor point out a few years ago. He said, the priest had to inspect the offering. Okay, that's, that's part of the process. The priest has to look it over and you know, check off, yep, it doesn't have any running sores, it's not crippled, it doesn't have any abnormal tumors or anything, right? But the priest never examined the person making the sacrifice. The priest always examined the sacrifice, but he never examined the person. And as we look at our lives, as I was looking at Leviticus and saying, okay, where is Jesus Christ in this, right? When God the Father looks at us, He's not looking to see if we're qualified to have fellowship with him, right? And, you know, when we get to heaven, it's not like the Trinity is sitting at a board meeting taking a vote, right? It's not like, oh, I hope it's two to one in my favor, right? Um, that's not how it works, right? Because God isn't looking at us. He's looking at the sacrifice, he doesn't look and say, what do you think? Do you think Nate, has Nate messed up lately, right? Well, we stopped counting, actually, um, right? Has, you know, is, is Nate, what do you think? Did, I mean, he's like, what was his percentage? What was his odds? You know, how many times did he 
stumble versus how many times did he resist temptation. And, and we, you know, we'll pull up this whole, like, you know, Major League Baseball spreadsheet on his stats. And, uh, okay, fine, you're in. That's not how it works. How does it work? The Lord says, and I'm not saying that the Lord literally says this, right? But um, the Lord says, you know, the blood of Jesus is sufficient, right? So he's not looking at me. He's looking at the sacrifice, right? And the sacrifice is sufficient. Jesus Christ is sufficient. The blood of Christ covers each and every one of us, right? So we have access to God, and we have the invitation and the ability to walk with God, right? That's what Leviticus has given us. It's given us the picture of those two ideas, and it's, but what it's really giving us is it's pointing to the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ, right? Because that is what matters. That is where, that is what makes anything and everything worthwhile, right? It's all about Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. That's what the entire scriptures are about. That's what our lives should be entirely about. So that's Leviticus kind of in a nutshell. Next week, we're going to cover numbers. Numbers, um, after the Israelites get all this beautiful info from God on how to have access to him and walk with him, Numbers is the story of how they proceed to completely blow it. Um, so Numbers is the lesson on how to fail as a Christian, if you're looking for pointers, right? Um, or if you're looking to avoid uh, the mistakes that Israel made, okay? So Numbers is coming up. But, but we have access, right? We have the invitation to walk with the Lord. So let's take it. So dear God, we thank you for your sufficiency. We thank you that you have paid the price to cover our sins. We thank you that we are not judged based on our merit, but only based on your sufficiency and your love for us. So Lord, we pray that, we pray that, that truth would impact us, not just uh, in an awareness, but in, in our actions, that it would drive us, that it would... Uh, cause us to live with purpose, cause us to live with intentionality, cause us to see everything through a different lens. I pray that it would color our life and color our world. I pray that you would uh, just work in our hearts, God, draw us near, make us more and more aware of your grace, your sufficiency. Have your way with us, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.